Coming up on Tech Nation, how big is the CES conference in Las Vegas? I mean, really? I speak with Rick Kowalski, the manager of industry and business intelligence at the Consumer Technology Association. And it's not just gadgets. Arizona State professor Cody Friesen tells us how his company, Zero Mass Water, is building hydro panels, producing water from sunlight and air. And in the healthcare field, Dr. Neil Cassell talks about the global potential and the challenges of focused ultrasound. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. While everyone is getting higher and higher hopes for driverless cars, especially worn-out soccer moms and baby boomers who suspect there will be an end to their days behind the wheel, we all need to adjust our bearings. While the technology is improving, we humans are still humans. A driver with twice the legal limit of alcohol was found sound asleep at the wheel of his Tesla, which had stopped right smack in the middle of the San Francisco Bay Bridge. No problem, he asserted. The Tesla was set to autopilot. It was the car's fault. It had stopped while in traffic and apparently needed the driver to start it up again. This and other incidents, and it's not just Tesla, show us that driverless cars haven't completely worked out the kinks, but it also points to something else. The driver has to be present, and that is problematic for any human, drunk or sober. In what situations might we find ourselves where we can be completely in our own thoughts and suddenly we're needed to physically intervene, to be prepared to act, and make quick decisions. One applicable scenario might be security guards. One reason they get up periodically and walk around the premises is to stay alert. They have to move their bodies. They engage their minds. They need to record events. They may practice incident scenarios. It's all about ensuring that they're ready for action when no action is really expected. And not just after hours on the job, but often for weeks and months at a time. They can't eat a whole pizza midway through their shift and hope to stay alert. It just can't happen. So why would you think you could share a pizza and a pitcher of beer with your buddies after work and then get in your car and have it automatically drive you home, say 30 miles away? I'd be asleep inside five minutes. But you can't be asleep even in a driverless car. You have to be alert and ready to take the wheel. The fact is, we're still human. Without technology, we haven't gotten any better at doing any number of tasks. We haven't gotten any faster. And we certainly don't seem to have any more discipline than our ancestors did. So if humans are still humans, what do we do now that our technology is bringing us cars that hurtle down the highway at 70 miles an hour without us doing a darn thing?
in addition to getting the driverless cars to work as perfectly as possible, we also need to design the driver experience so that the driver stays alert. Well, you can't have the driver get up and walk around. You can't have him play video games. You can't have him buried with his head in a novel or work on his computer. Surely someone has worked this out. Actually, it doesn't seem so. Ford found that the engineers who were testing its driverless cars kept falling asleep. Alarm bells didn't work. Flashing lights didn't work. Having a second engineer in the car didn't work. So besides figuring out how to keep a driver alert, the technology has to be able to tell if he is alert. And if not, pull over on the side and park. When he wakes up, it will too. Being human isn't easy. The technology is getting better, faster, and cheaper. But we're not. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, there's more than just gadgets at the CES meeting in Las Vegas. We hear from Rick Kowalski, the manager of industry and business intelligence at the Consumer Technology Association. Meeting basic human needs, we talk to Arizona State engineering professor Cody Friesen, the founder and CEO of Zero Mass Water, about building hydro panels, getting water from sunlight and air. And in healthcare, Dr. Neil Cassell, the founder and chairman of the Focus Ultrasound Foundation. This former neurosurgeon is working to bring this technology wherever it can help. Whenever you leave your hotel room, you realize you just can't get a handle on it. I asked Rick Kowalski from the Consumer Technology Association, how many people are here in Las Vegas to attend CES 2018? Yeah, so we're expecting at least 170,000 people here, um, and they're visiting 2.7 million square feet of show space. So they're uh, just enjoying all the tech uh, that is on the show floor. Well, as the manager of industry and business intelligence, do you actually make it to every square foot? How do you do this? How I do you address it? I wish I could make it to all 3,900 exhibitors. Um, I, I try to see what I can and uh, pick out a few companies. And just on your way to that booth, you might see some interesting things serendipitously. So uh, that's a great thing about this show. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I look out there and try to look for new trends. Uh, a lot of what I do is trying to see where the future of tech is. And, you know, we look out five years in advance and try to see where things are going. So, uh, you know, walk through the booths 
kind of gives you some hints. How do you actually do it? Because for all but this four days of the year, five days of the year, you're sitting in your office trying to figure out how what's going on out there. Tell us how you do it. Yeah, we reach out to a lot of our members and ask them, you know, where do you think the market's going on whatever tech that they're producing? So we talk to manufacturers and try to get a sense of, you know, where they see the market going, where they see the opportunities, uh, where what they see in consumer trends. Uh, CTA, we do our own consumer research, so we're asking consumers what they're, what they like, what they are thinking about buying, um, what they don't like, and it gives us some sense as to where our members should go. You know where the market opportunity is. And on top of that, we model uh, some of our research to um, look at old trends and apply those adoption trends to uh, the next five years and and try to use that as some guidance. Well, clearly something that is brand new, disruptive – you know, completely changes what's going on out here. Nobody ever thought about it before. That's hard to predict. You know, how fast is that adoption going to be? And I think one of the greatest examples was the iPhone. It was coming out just before Christmas, and all the industry analysts came in and said somewhere between 5 and 12 million, and it sold like twice as many. Nobody nobody could predict, you know. So we yeah. forgive you in advance, <laughs> Rick, of some of these, these new things can't be predicted. Um, but what about old tech? You've got sales records here. What are the kinds of things you feel pretty confident in in terms of producing predictions? I think we have a pretty well-established tracking of televisions. That's kind of one of our mainstays in the industry. I mean, we were once the Radio and Television uh, Manufacturers Association, so that was, you know, our, our big category. And we have a lot of data on that. We talk to a lot of companies about that and have a really good sense of what's attracting consumers, what's doing best in stores, where the tech is going. Um, smartphones is, as yes, it's come up quite a bit since the 2000s. Um, and it's starting to mature. You know, we're, we're starting to see slower growth, uh, but people still love to refresh their smartphones every couple of years. And uh, there's a lot of them out there. We're starting to see that category. You know, it's it's definitely one of the largest in our industry and uh, definitely affects so many other products in our industry. So it's definitely the new central device that everyone needs. Um, so that's a, a definitely a big category for us. And then other than that, computing is the other. Uh, computers have changed a lot over the years, but something we're always watching because, again, it's such a central part of the home office and just your you know day-to-day life. Now, I have to say that you can have the niftiest smartphone in the world, but if you have no connection to the internet, it doesn't you know, you watch a video and it starts and stops and starts and stops. It's just you wait for results. One of the things that I've been seeing here is everybody keeps saying 5G, 5G, 5G. Tell everybody what that means. Yeah, so 5G is the next generation in cellular wireless technology, uh, wireless internet. And uh, this is going to be a a huge opening up of bandwidth. Um, Not only bandwidth, but speed, speed. and uh, lower latency and more efficient chips in all of our devices. Uh, this 5G is going to be about 100 times faster, 
And then what's in your phone right now? Yeah, yeah. So you'll I be. I was able to, thinking two or three. It'd be nice. A hundred times faster. It's a very. Um, they anticipate trying to accommodate you know millions of more devices, magnitudes more devices on the network. So they're really trying to be able to accommodate many devices talking to one another. Uh, a lot of internet video. Um, internet video is one of the main traffic, um, main sources of traffic on the internet right now. So 5G is really trying to look out to, to the future pretty far out and anticipate those needs for data. Um, so over the next 10 years, uh, even in the next few years, we're going to start seeing some rollouts in certain markets, um, some trials. And over time, the manufacturers will figure out ways to roll this out in the most efficient way, try to figure out what infrastructure is needed and the chips that are needed. Um, and so it's all it's all coming together here at CES. These companies are here to partner, to talk it out. And uh, that's the exciting thing about the show is that, you know, we're talking about it now and where it could go. And it lets us dream a little, but also tackle some of the, the hard to hard to answer questions about, you know, how do we actually make this happen? And of course, they're solving a technology problem. And there's that darn fickle consumer. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. you can be all dressed up with no place to go with all this ability to move all this around. It could be so fast. If we don't have applications that we really want to use, it'll just sit there, dead air. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're always paying attention to what consumers are doing. And with all this data out there now, manufacturers and service providers are paying attention to what consumers are doing, what they like, what they don't like. So with all this data, they can kind of steer their services where they need to go and uh, make sure that, you know, this doesn't go to waste. I don't think it's going to go to waste. I think uh, we've seen continuing demand for bandwidth and a lot of internet video, internet streaming. Uh, we just started tracking uh, streaming services as part of our forecast. And in 2018, that's going to be a $19.5 billion market. That's money that consumers are spending on music streaming and video streaming. And that's growing so much. And it's really shaking up the television market and everything. But this is the, this is the way that people are getting video now. So it's a big change. One set of terms that you definitely hear this year is artificial intelligence, augmented reality, mixed reality, all of these things that have to that take a lot of data and a lot of processing and a lot of intelligence, machine intelligence to figure out how to do. That kind of just it's just exploded. Yeah, I think uh you know, it's we're becoming more capable of incorporating artificial intelligence into uh devices. On top of that, uh, we're accessing a lot of art artificial intelligence on the cloud. So, if, you know, if you're talking to your digital assistant on your smart speaker, you know, you say, hey, Google or, you know, Alexa, you know, ask Alexa a question. That's going out to the Internet and coming back to you with, with a answer. And uh, that interaction, there's been a lot of research and a, a lot of time and effort put into making that interaction as natural as, as possible uh, a lot of people studying natural language processing and to make that as seamless as possible. You know, 10 years ago, voice interaction was very clunky. There were only a couple players. Now there are many major players in this market coming out with their own digital assistant. 
Uh, and that's just one example of artificial intelligence. Um, I, I look to self-driving vehicles as one of the, the most challenging artificial intelligence uh, problems right now. Uh, it's, it's a huge challenge to get a car to do, to act like a driver, a human driver, to make the decisions, the complicated decisions necessary. And, but we're getting, we're getting there. Like in the next five years, we're going to start seeing fleets of self-driving vehicles out on the roads. They're out there now at CES. Uh, so it's really neat to see They're that. Driving around out here. Uh, last <laughs> year I rode uh, in NVIDIA's self-driving car and what a, <laughs> what a trip that was. Just really interesting to see what's capable now. And they're really working hard on it. And there's a lot of processing power available now to, you know, conquer these big challenges. So I think, um, you know, when it comes down to really practical artificial intelligence, look to self-driving vehicles for that. A big area here is health tech. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've come a long way since about 2009, 2010. We started seeing fitness trackers just kind of general activity trackers that, you know, counted your steps. And you started to see this quantified self movement where people were tracking, you know, keeping a log of how many steps they had a day, uh, how much activity they were getting day to day. And now that just exploded over the past few years. Uh, there's going to be 49.3 million wearables shipped in the U.S. this year. And that includes... Uh, you know, fitness trackers, that's smartwatches, that's hearables. Uh, things hearables? You put, hearables. Not wearables, hearables. These are devices you put in your ear and can sense your, um, your heartbeat, your heart rate, and your activity levels. Um, so there's a lot of earbuds that do that now. Sports tech uh, is a small but emerging category. So um, I think what we see in this wearables category is a lot more attention to niche markets and, uh, you know, they're looking after, you know, sports. Let's, let's look at how to help a baseball player, you know, better their swing or you see it in golf a lot too. Um, so you see, or smart balls even. So you have smart soccer balls and smart footballs and basketballs that help you, uh, see how you're, you're performing and how you can better your throw or your swing. So uh, the manufacturers are starting to kind of tackle these specific markets. Uh, and on top of that, uh, besides sports, you start seeing a lot of sleep tech on the show floor right now. A lot of beds on the slope. There are yeah. beds that can sense your um, activity at night. And if you're you know rolling around a lot at night or if you're getting a good night's rest, people are interested in what they do at night. They you know Otherwise, you don't have a good sense of – how you're doing when you're sleeping, you're, you're knocked out. So, uh, the devices are there to monitor you and tell you how you're, how you're doing and maybe how you can change your habits. Um, that's a great thing about some of these devices. They're, they're trying to help people change their habits and, and, uh, you know, really change your life for the better, try to be a little healthier. So you got any business intelligence on how well people change their habits? How receptive they are. That, I, Did you hear that I think the sort whole, of disdain in my voice? The whole field of psychology is, <laughs> is uh, looking into that. <laughs> you know, that's the neat thing about this. Uh, this industry touches on so many other fields. Um, you know, we see automotive, we see smart cities, we see health, um, you see home technology, uh, work, you know, 
things you'd see in the workplace on the go. So uh, we, we touch so many different fields and it takes even, you know, studying psychology to understand how people are going to use devices and, and, you know, how their behavior changes if they're using these. What about baby tech? Whole area on baby tech. Yeah, I think uh, people will really, you know, sleep mo- or, you know, uh, monitors, uh, baby monitors were probably the, the first real baby tech. People want to see what their baby's doing at night and to keep an eye on them without having to go into the other room or disturb them. Uh, now there's a lot of a lot of the fitness, well, activity trackers um, and some ca- even cameras that are smart enough to tell what the baby's doing at night, if their breathing is normal, if their heart rate's normal, um, to see if they're maybe being disturbed. Um, so, you know, people are, you know, excited to have this tech in their home just to see uh, what it does and to see if it maybe makes for a better night's rest or um, at least gives them peace of mind. I think what's so great about uh, technology in general and invention in general um, is that all of these people here have invented things. They've moved it to a certain point. They may be ready to kickstart it, or they may be maybe a small group inside a very large corporation that thought up something and they've worked on it. With with innovation, you have to start and get to a certain point. And, and even if that doesn't become the product, that's not a failure. I mean, we really – it actually all – the, all the boats are lifted by everyone working here. Yeah, I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of the companies that go through the process and maybe fail even, they have learned something. You know, they figured out what didn't work. And then there's the companies that are figuring out what does work. And uh, you see some really great shooting stars out of the out of the – you know, we have 900 startups right now, and we've seen some that have become very successful – and so I think it's great. There's a, a lot of ideas, a lot of fresh new ideas out there. The bigger companies are looking to the startups to see what's potentially out there and which ideas might actually have some traction, you know. So there's a lot of, um, you know, companies looking for partnerships and, and looking for that next new tech trend. And I think that's the great thing about CES is you have so many fresh new ideas out there. You have the excitement that entrepreneurs can only bring to uh, a show like this. And uh, it's just great to see how they are getting their idea out there, how they do their elevator pitches and how they're, you know, really trying to get that, that idea and that tech out there in people's hands. And, um, you know, it's, it's some of it's the beginning of something beautiful, and we'll see more and more of that. And they have a lot of energy. And I just yes. want to say that if you're walking through the exhibit floor and it says media on your badge, you want to kind of stick it in because <laughs> they will attack you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're ready. We have, <laughs> they're uh, ready. We have over 7,000 members of the media here. So uh, they're a huge part of the show. They get the word out. And uh, that's why they're attacking you. They really need that word out there, right? And, uh, you know, you play an integral part of the excitement of the show, getting getting the stories out there. And, um, yeah, it's a great thing. You know, it's a great part of the show. Well, Rick, thanks for coming in. We really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. Rick Kowalski is the manager of industry and business intelligence at the Consumer Technology Association. If you thought the annual CES gathering in Las Vegas was just about gadgets, you would be gravely mistaken. It's also about meeting basic human needs. 
Dr. Cody Friesen is the Fulton Engineering Professor of Innovation at Arizona State University and the founder and CEO of Zero Mass Water, which builds hydro panels producing water from sunlight and air. It's been said that all the water in the world is already here. I asked Dr. Friesen, from his perspective, is that true? Well, in a literal sense, in the sense that we live on this little marble swinging around the sun, and all the water that we'll ever have on this planet is here. Uh, The really interesting thing about water is that the overwhelming majority, over 99% of it is salt water. And then just a small part of that is water that we refer to as fresh water. But that is only really saying fresh because it doesn't have salt in it. A lot of water in the ground, on the surface, and so on has been, uh, let's say, modified by uh, sort of uh, human industrial behavior. And so we've gone from a history where uh, water that was in the ground or flowing on the surface was largely clean to a condition where it's getting ever harder to make sure that it's good for human consumption. We're constantly reminded of how many people on the planet don't have water so that any of these ways that are very innovative now that we can ensure a good water supply is good. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, tell us what this product does, and then we'll talk about how it all works together. We're talking about products called Source, and it's a hydro panel. What's that? Yeah, the idea there behind uh, Source is to take sunlight and air and produce drinking water. And do that totally independent of infrastructure. So no wire going in and no pipe going in, just one pipe leading out. Remembering and, that water's H2O. That's right. And if you if you think about uh, the human condition and, and when we think about how much bottled water is consumed globally, about a half a trillion liters a year. And that's not for wealthy people Uh, Majority is not for wealthy people who are looking for a convenience. 95% of bottled water consumption is a rational choice by people who need to do so in order to avoid getting sick. And that's both in the U.S. and all around the globe. And so if you look at that as the incumbent, which Pacific Institute and Cal Recycle, when they did their analyses around the carbon footprint of bottled water, it's about one kilogram of CO2 per liter a bottled water. So that's about a one-to-one weight ratio. That's crazy. And so if we go from that to a solution that almost digitizes water in the sense that in the same way that your cell phone allows you to have all of humanity's information in your pocket or a solar panel allows you to own your own electricity, source enables you to have complete independence around your water. Okay. So how does it work? We're at CES in Las Vegas. You know, you're just producing water out of air and sunlight. So, you know, you're going to have to be a little more specific. So there's actually a lot of um, experiences in your personal life that allow you to sort of understand in a very straightforward way what source does. Um, If you ever lift the lid off of a sugar bowl, you'll see that the sugar sort of clumps a bit, right? Or in your favorite greasy spoon restaurant, you'll see the little rice kernels inside of a salt shaker. Well, the sugar is clumping and the rice is in that salt shaker because – they're what's referred to as hygroscopic. That's the big word that means is Greek hygro, which means water vapor, and scopic meaning it likes it, right? So uh, sugar is highly hygroscopic. It likes water vapor. It turns out that you can engineer materials to have that property and to take up water very, very quickly. 
I'm speaking with Arizona State Professor Dr. Cody Friesen, the founder and CEO of Zero Mass Water. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, an established healthcare technology looking to do as much good as possible. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Arizona State University professor Cody Friesen, the founder and CEO of Zero Mass Water, about how materials can be engineered to absorb water, just like sugar or salt. That's one of the things we did is to develop nanostructured, hierarchically porous materials that can take up water from the atmosphere, concentrate it from the air by about 20,000 times by volume. And then we use a solar technology and thermodynamics to then drive a cycle where we take water from the air and then we produce water in liquid form, just like much like the uh, sun coming up over the oceans, evaporating the water from the ocean, forming clouds, and then it raining back down. We do that every hour of every day, almost anywhere on the planet. And then gravity takes hold and it just drops to the bottom. Yeah, we've, we put that into a reservoir, every single panel. Um, it has a 30 liter reservoir inside. And then has a pump that pumps it to your tap at 80 PSI. So the person inside the home or in the school or any other place that we might be, their experience is much like the municipal supply. You open the what would have been your filter tap or go to your refrigerator and the water arrives at pressure and has the same composition and taste as some of the top bottled water brands in the world. Uh, in fact, we did a big analysis, uh, elemental analysis of a bunch of different bottled water brands to really understand what was in them that made them good and also found some of the stuff that was in them that isn't so good. Uh, so we have this really crazy library of all this stuff, but it allowed us to then go engineer our water to have a mouthfeel and taste that sort of is right at that luxury water experience 
that we can take to whether it's Puerto Rico or somebody living in San Francisco or somebody uh, uh, who's a Syrian refugee in northern Lebanon. It's a really big range. We're very very proud of our water in San Francisco because we drink snowmelt. Uh, hundreds of miles away oh, yes, the in the great, the great Hetch Hetchy <laughs> Valley. We we dammed it up, S- snows every winter, and it melts. And then we transport it literally across the state of California. We open our tap in San Francisco, and it's just pure water. It's delicious. It's absolutely great. That's overkill <laughs> to, the, to the nth 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 degree, considering that we could create water locally. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the thing that's really neat or interesting is um, the famed Hetch Hetchy results. It is amazing water. One of the things, though, that you that uh, people don't always appreciate is that the infrastructure is still pretty old in San Francisco. And so even just recently, you know, in, uh, I think it was about November in Oakland, a bunch of schools are found to have greater than EPA limits of lead. That's not because of the water that was coming from the lake far away. That was because of the infrastructure. And it's one of the three big problems with water, right? It's broken infrastructure, lack of transparency around what you're consuming, and lack of convenience, having to put in filters or buy bottles. And with source, it it just comes from the air, and there's zero supply chain. It's right there, made at your home. And uh, it's renewable water that uh, is there whether the sun is shining or not because we store it. So we have something like a battery, but in this form of the reservoir. Now, you would put these solar panels, these hydro panels, excuse me, on your roof or the roof of your building if there were multiple units in the building. And uh, so it would depend on how much sunlight there is. Does it also depend on how humid the air is? Somewhat, uh, but it's actually less dependent on that than you might think initially. Uh, so we are based in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is a very dry, sunny place. Uh, and it's because of the way that we uh, actually make the water. Your intuition is right because you're probably used to, you know, that cold glass of iced tea and dew forming on the outside. But we don't actually make water by direct condensation that way. We have these materials that absorb water no matter what the relative humidity is. And then we just have to pr- apply the thermodynamics that allow us to cycle that water out of those materials. And so as long as there's some humidity, which almost anywhere on the planet there is, and as long as there's some sunlight, which most of the time there is, uh, we can produce water. Now, what if it snows? I mean, on the East Coast right now at this recording, it's freezing, it's snowing. I mean, it's really a tough, harsh winter. Would it be able to operate there? When everything's frozen, right, even the water inside of our panels gets frozen. And so uh, when we have a seasonal condition like that, what we'll do is we'll put in an array that is a little bit bigger, and then you're basically doing seasonal energy storage in the form of water. And so somebody who's in Vermont or upstate New York, uh, instead of having two panels on their home that you might have in California, might have three panels, and then store so that in the winter there's a reservoir. A larger reservoir, yeah. Yeah, it's a separate reservoir inside the home that allows people to have their great perfected water any time of the year. How big are these panels? So they're... um, about the size of a, of a sheet of plywood, if you want to think about it. So it's sort of a typical solar panel size. Uh, and in a typical U.S. residence, we would put in two panels, which gives you up to 10 liters of water a day or about 20 standard bottles a day of water, which is like a case of bottled water a day. So it's enough for a typical family for all their drinking and cooking needs. Now, depending on where you live, will it 
the amount it produced change? So we've actually done modeling for of environment and sol- solar and so on for all over the globe. And so we have a really good understanding of how much you'll make on a month-by-month basis pretty much anywhere on the planet. And so we size arrays based on that. So when we're at a school in uh, Sinaloa, Mexico, where we're at several schools there, uh, for, a, let's say, a 100-child school, the number of panels there might be different than the array that we'd put in in North Carolina or then that's a school that we put at uh, in northern Lebanon. So those we adjust based on that just like you would for a normal solar installation. Now, what have you learned doing these installations all over the world? Well, getting you all the way back to the human element, uh, one of the things that I just pinch myself every day is getting to take this technology that started as material science and then applying good mechanical engineers, good chemical engineers, computational fluid dynamicists, and all of this technology that all these technologists had had to come around to make source possible. Then now when we put these in, uh, people and children that didn't have good access to water before and people in the U.S. who have broken infrastructure or whatever it might be, all of a sudden they're owning their own water. They have independence around their water. And that can, that can be really life-changing for people. So the thing that I've learned is just how awesome it is to take something that is really one of humanity's greatest problems and translate a technology into that space and change people's lives one at a time. It's been awesome. So for me, it's um, re energized my love of innovation and technology development. Now, did you have an idea that you wanted to work on water, or is it more that you observed something and started to apply it? How did it happen? It's one of those things where the universe kind of wanted to make it happen, you know? (laughs) So it's this confluence of things. Nudging you in a direction, right? Yeah, no, I think, you know, so uh, I've spent a lot of time in emerging markets over the years um, and gotten to know people across the economic spectrum. And whether we're talking about, you know, Southeast Asia or Central America or, you know, the deserts of the U.S. um, or the Arabian deserts, water stress is sort of a human condition. There are places where there are meters and meters of rainfall per year, but nothing to drink. And then there are places where there's water scarcity driving water stress. Sort of recognizing that and sort of starting to look at how people individually solve that problem across the whole economic spectrum, it started, it became clear that if one could create enough drinking water for, you know, a family independent of infrastructure, you could change the world. The interesting kind of uh, juxtaposition, if you will, is if you just take a breath of air, do it with me here, Moira, right? All you have to do to own the air you breathe is just take a breath and water and air are the equivalent for your life. And yet think about the supply chain of the air you just breathe and the supply chain of the last drink of water you had. Think about how different those things are. If we could collapse the the second into a supply chain that's similar to the air you breathe, the world changes dramatically. Now, you've already said, hey, each panel is about the size of a of a sheet of plywood, which is roughly, say, four by eight, something like that. Um, how thick is the panel? It's uh, the panel top is about four inches, and then there's a um, box underneath that basically is where the reservoir is and so on. Okay. And, and how much does this weigh without the water in it? <laughs> uh, about 130 kilograms. 
And what's that in pounds for oh. our American friends? <laughs> Sorry, about 275 pounds. There you go. <laughs> and okay, so we're talking, boy, that's that's pretty big. That's a lot on your roof, you know? From a footprint perspective, it's it's spread out. So it's not more density of weight to, than like an air conditioner. So when we typically do an installation, the, the roof structures are almost always uh, strong enough to support the weight. And, of course, we do engineering to make sure that's the case. So the weight per area is not that much more than a typical solar array or air conditioner. Now, in electronics, I'd say, okay, better, faster, cheaper. But we'd have to say smaller footprint, weighs less. You know, had any ideas? Yeah, we have a, a really uh, phenomenal R&D team that is constantly working on all sorts of things. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a world uh, defining or sorry, a category defining technology here that, you know, really is, is the world's first uh, hydro panel. When we think about where we go from here, there's all sorts of really cool stuff coming down the pipe. And you've got all those students. You're still a professor. That's right. You never and know what's going to come out of there. Young people come minds. up with the best ideas. There you go. Hey, uh, Cody, thank you so much. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. Come back anytime. Thank you, Moira. Arizona State Engineering Professor Cody Friesen is the founder and CEO of Zero Mass Water. More information is available at zeromasswater.com. Healthcare is yet another area where technology meets human need. Dr. Neil Cassell is the founder and chairman of the Focused Ultrasound Foundation. The former co-chair of neurosurgery at the University of Virginia, he's published over 500 scientific papers and received over $30 million in grants from NIH. Dr. Cassell, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. We're familiar with traditional surgery. This is a different surgical technique. What is focused ultrasound? So it's, it's more than surgery. So focused ultrasound is an early stage, totally non-invasive therapeutic technology that is a game-changing alternative, highly disruptive alternative to traditional surgery, radiation therapy, and drug delivery. And it has the potential to transform the treatment of a whole variety of serious medical disorders and thereby improve the lives of millions of people around the world. You spent a career being a surgeon. How is this different than what you typically would have done? Well, in terms of being a surgeon, I have to tell you that the type of neurosurgery I did was the best job in the world. Okay, there was no, no greater privilege and nothing was more enjoyable than being able to take care of these desperately ill patients. But in my practice, which was very large and it involved sort of uh, vascular problems in the brain and benign tumors of the brain, I would affect in the hundreds of lives per year. And I say affect because sometimes they, things didn't go as well as you would like. The research that I've been doing starting in 1962 effects in the thousands of patients per year. Focused ultrasound, if it achieves its potential, will affect in the hundreds of thousands or millions of patients per year. So there's a tremendous satisfaction, the privilege of being involved in a revolution in therapy that could affect millions of patients. But it's not as much fun, I have to tell you, as operating and caring for individual patients. 
So how does it work? How does focused ultrasound work? So the way focused ultrasound works is analogous to using a magnifying glass and focusing beams of light on a point and burn a hole in a leaf. But with focused ultrasound, instead of using an optical lens to focus beams of light, we use an acoustic lens to focus multiple beams of ultrasound energy on a point deep in the body with a high degree of precision and accuracy, sparing the adjacent normal tissue. And where each of the individual beams goes through the tissue, it has no effect. But at that focal point where all the beams converge, just like where the beams of light converge, it, focused ultrasound has a, a 18 mechanisms of action of how it interacts with tissue. And that includes the ability to destroy tissue, to deliver drugs in extremely high concentration, precisely to the point in the body where they're needed, and thereby minimizing the systemic complications or side effects, uh, stimulating the body's immune response to malignant tumors and facilitating or augmenting the effectiveness of the new immuno-oncology drugs, and so on. There's 18 now that we understand. Ten years ago, we understood three. The fact that there are so many different mechanisms of action produces the possibility or creates the possibility to treat a whole variety of serious medical disorders. How did you become aware of focused ultrasound? So, uh, around 12 years ago, I had been casting about for a solution to treat some of my patients who had tumors in the brain that were surgically inaccessible or tumors that had maxed out on surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, and there was nothing, nothing left. So I was looking around for a non-invasive or a minimally invasive approach for these otherwise untreatable tumors. At the same time, I was using ultrasound in the laboratory to measure blood flow in the brain. And I can remember specifically where I was driving home from the hospital, the specific location in the moment when I said, Eureka, I'll bet we could use focused ultra, or use ultrasound, ultrasound somehow to treat these otherwise untreatable tumors. And I got really excited because I understood that if this would work, the potential was enormous. And I said to myself, you know, I've been doing research since 1962. Finally, I have a Nobel Prize winning idea. And I raced home and I went to the internet and lo and behold, it was a Nobel Prize winning idea. It just wasn't mine. <laughs> okay. So sorry to so hear that. It was very, very disappointing. <laughs> it was a great 10 minutes. <laughs> it was a great 10 minutes. Right? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about all that Swedish money. But anyhow. <laughs> so then I, I did some research and figured out who was uh, involved in the field. And then I brought together some people in Charlottesville and it took off. Was the technology in place at that time for this focused ultrasound? It, yeah, it had been it was it was even earlier stage obviously. It was 12 11 12 13 years ago and a lot has changed since then, but there was enough. And could you immediately use it for instance in operations on the brain? I mean, we've got to have some approvals from the government. No, right? no. It's so so today, I mean, this is we have to put it in context. When I first got involved with focused ultrasound, there were three indications in various stages of research and development. 
One was pain from bone metastasis, one was prostate cancer, and one was treatment of uterine fibroids. Today, there are more than 100. So, you know, the field is growing very, very rapidly. Uh, and the brain indications have come on really strong recently, and they, they include, again, early stage research for the most part of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, OCD and depression, epilepsy, and brain tumors when you look at the brain. And it's achieved FDA approval for five indications, uh, including essential tremor, which is a cousin of Parkinson's disease. That's in the U.S., of the, of the 100 altogether, 23 have achieved regulatory approval, the other 18 in Europe and in Asia. What was it like the first time you said, okay, we're going to do this on a real living human person? Well, it was, it, it was really, really scary for us. We at the foundation funded, organized and funded the, the research project that was at the University of Virginia so it was scary for us, but can you imagine the courage of the first patient who put his head into the machine? And fortunately, he, this, it was a man who was disabled by a central tremor. He couldn't button his shirt. He couldn't tie his shoes. He couldn't hold a cup of coffee. He went into the machine and came out cured. And the, the team— <laughs> No. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and he came out. He said, this is a miracle. And the team of engineers and physicians and scientists that were there, it was, it was just, you know, indescribable. Can you imagine if it hadn't worked or if it had created oh. a complication? It would, that would have been the end. <laughs> right. Anyhow, very, very exciting. You mentioned the foundation. Let's talk about that. When did you create that? Created the foundation in October of 2006. And the mission of the foundation is to shorten the time that it takes for a technology-focused ultrasound to go from laboratory research to widespread patient treatment. Our goal is to accelerate, to be the catalyst for accelerating the development and adoption of this technology. Unfortunately, for virtually all new therapeutic technologies, the evolution from concept to widespread adoption as a mainstream standard of care is a glacial process that often takes decades. So we understood that if we could shave years off of this, it would reduce unnecessary death and disability and suffering for countless people, saving time, saving lives. So the foundation is a tax-exempt organization, and we engage in a variety of activities that overcome barriers and take advantage of opportunities to shorten the time. As everyday listeners, we say, well, we want it. We want it now if we have a problem or loved ones have a problem. What kind of challenge do you face with the adoption of such a technology? The, the challenges are enormous. Uh, first of all, the process is extremely complicated and, large, and involves a large number of very difficult steps, like you know, d development of the technology, testing the technology, uh, preclinical laboratory studies, clinical trials, getting regulatory approval from the FDA, getting insurance companies to cover it, getting 
patients to be aware of it, getting physicians to be aware of it, getting acceptance by the different medical specialists, and so on. So there's a large number of steps that have to be accomplished by a bewildering array of organizations that comprise the ecosystem. And many of these organizations have different agendas and timelines for decision-making, whether it's the insurance companies or whether it's NIH or the FDA or the medical societies. So there's all that. And then on top of that, there's a whole host of fairly daunting uh, hurdles that have to be overcome, lack of awareness of, and acceptance of physicians and patients, fairly uh, difficult turf battles between the medical specialists, uh, getting the, uh, the, the correct long-term robust scientific evidence of safety and efficacy that satisfies the medical community, that satisfies the, the regulators, the FDA, that satisfies the insurance companies. So it's a, it's a heavy lift to, to, uh, to get one of these indications approved and accepted. It sounds to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me like this would be a far more economical procedure than many of the procedures that we have. Is that, is that the case? Absolutely. And focused ultrasound is one of the rare new technologies that satisfies or fulfills the holy grail in that it both will improve outcome and decrease cost of care. Now, everyone may say that's a good idea, but we have a healthcare establishment right. with a lot of investment right. and interrelating parts of who pays what and right. what we've invested and counting on revenues. This is problematic, is it not? It, well, it's, it's more than problematic because it's highly disruptive. It's disruptive not only to referral patterns and practice patterns for physicians, but it's disruptive for existing technologies. For instance, it competes and and it will overshadow things like radiation therapy, the radiotherapy device companies, or the medical robotics companies. So there's a lot of, uh, of challenges that have to be overcome. How do you figure out what's a good candidate to investigate for focused ultrasound? Okay, so th that is a great question. And what occupies the the bulk of my time is looking at these 18 mechanisms of action and figuring out which one is likely to, or which of the number are likely to translate into new treatments and that which of the new treatments are likely to provide unique value in terms of decreasing death, disability, suffering, and cost. And that's, that's a, a, a difficult thing because clearly with 100 indications already and the number increasing, it's not for – focused ultrasound is not for every patient. It's not for every disorder. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it requires additional uh, research and development and clinical trials and experience to figure out where it's going to be best applied. Now, there are so many areas in which people are working around the world, uh, and you mentioned some. There are others in pediatrics, uh, pulmonary, cardiovascular, women's health, et cetera. One of the areas that I, I 
couldn't figure out just by hearing was how can focused ultrasound assist in drug delivery? There are a number of approaches, and I'm going to simplify it a bit, but one approach is to use things that are called microbubbles. And these are hollow lipid spheres, about a tenth of a diameter of a red blood cell. These microbubbles can be loaded up with drugs, chemotherapy agents for cancer, genes or growth factors for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. And then millions and millions and millions of these tiny microbubbles are injected intravenously. And they circulate throughout the body and they, they go wherever the blood goes. So they're in every tissue and every organ. But the drug is inactive. Why? Because it's trapped in the microbubble, except at the point where the focused ultrasound is focused. And at that point, and at that point only, the microbubbles burst and release their pharmacological payload. I know that people will be interested in the potential for focused ultrasound with regard to their own needs. Uh, and I also know that people will want to help. Medical professionals will want to know more. How do all those groups do that? I think that if people are interested, the easiest way for them to get additional information is to go to the Focused Ultrasound's website, which is, and you can Google Focused Ultrasound Foundation. And the website will tell you about all the indications, all the mechanisms of action, all of the treatment sites. Also on the website, in addition to a section for patients, there's sections for scientists and sections for clinicians. So focused ultrasound is the most powerful sound you will never hear, but it's a sound that someday could save your life. Dr. Cassell, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you'll come back on Tech Nation. Be delighted to. Dr. Neil Cassell is the founder and chairman of the Focused Ultrasound Foundation. More information is available at fusfoundation.org. From CES 2018, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Nevada, for Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.